Hi, I'm Sean McCambridge, Managing Director of Stellar Recruitment. Thanks for joining me on this journey to uncover the secrets of inspirational leaders. The reason I put this together is to share the unique journeys of these successful individuals and really unpack how they've achieved success and hopefully inspire others to do similar things. So thanks for tuning in and listening, and I hope you enjoy the series. Peter, thanks for joining us as part of the uh, Stellar Recruitment Inspirational Leaders podcast series. Uh, really looking forward to the chat today. Perhaps you've given the, the listeners a quick overview of your career, both within sport and, and maybe pre-sport, starting uh, you know, where it all began. Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's great to be with you. It's a very sort of eclectic type career. I started off doing commerce at Adelaide University and left there just before my 21st birthday, came straight over to Melbourne to be a graduate trainee with what was then CRA Limited, Concept Rio Tinto of Australia, and it's now just morphed into Rio Tinto, and I spent 10 years in the mining industry. They taught me a lot of good stuff uh, from a business analysis point of view, and I spent three years up at Bougainville and with Hammersley Iron, and the great thing about that time was that was our first real mining boom because that was when these big mega projects were built, and I was sort of into them two or three years after they opened, so that was really exciting. And But after about 10 years with that company, I thought I'd have more of an influence over an organisation, success or otherwise of it, so I moved into manufacturing and spent uh, 12 years or so in a, in a handful of different manufacturing-type companies, all varied from dairy products to specialty cleaning to, you know, building products, all sorts of things, and fell into a habit of restructuring businesses, and uh, the biggest one was restructuring a business on behalf of a bank and actually going to receivership but unofficial management. And from then, I, uh, I just got a phone call uh, one day uh, saying, oh, there's a job going as the CEO of Essendon Football Club. It's a new type of role. It's board's done a review of the Boston Consulting Group. They want to change the way they operate from a committee of management. They want professional CEO, and I sort of burst out laughing at the idea of me running a football club. How crazy is that? But I thought about it over a six-month period and finally said yes, and um, I ended up 12 years there and retired in 2009. And then I was doing a lot of leadership development work, individual coaching and running programs to teach executive teams about leadership and and how to be a more effective team. Then got a phone call from the AFL about, well, are you bored yet? Do you want to come back and try and help Melbourne because they're in a bad way? And uh, I thought about that challenge and said yes, so... That, that's the potted history. That's very eclectic. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a sports administrator by birth. I didn't play the game at that level, so I sort of fell into it by accident, really. And, and that might be a good sort of segue into the next question, and obviously uh, many fans will be probably aware of the state of play when you entered the Melbourne Football Club, but uh, it's my understanding there was significant debt, uh, a fair uh, amount of turmoil, there was allegations around tanking, and obviously performance or any year results that were far from inspiring. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, how did the board lure you to take on this challenge? You're in retirement, you've already had a, a decorated career, and what was the driver for you in taking that challenge on? Yeah, well, it, it wasn't in a good place, and, and it wasn't uh, the board that called me. Actually, it was Andrew Demetrio, the then CEO of the AFL, who called me, and it, and it culminated. It, they just got into 2013. They'd had a fairly horrible... You know, six years before that, 
it's just worth noting that by the end of 2013, uh, it was the worst performed football club on the field in the history of AFL, BFL for those seven years, like even worse than what Fitzroy were for the, you know, had the had some advantage of playing GWS and Gold Coast during some of those years too. So they were in a very, very bad place. The tanking allegations, you know, that had been finished. They ended up paying a half million dollar fine for tanking. So yeah, it was not a... And, as far as 2013 concerned, they, they thought they were going to, you know, all that worse was behind them. They went into the year very positive. They lost, lost the first game by 60 or 70 points against Port Adelaide. They got belted by Essendon the next year by uh, 148 points and, you know, the pressure was on them. They were 10 points down against West Coast Eagles and the fans were excited because they were only 10 points behind lost the game by 94 points. So, yeah, they they were in a really really bad way and uh, just needed a circuit breaker, I think. So Andrew gave me a call. Uh, why? Um, well, I think yeah, you know, I, I think he needed to call me because I probably had expressed things before that I thought Melbourne as a brand was really important to the AFL. I mean, it is the founding club. It wrote the rules. It started the game. Uh, it's the third oldest professional sporting club in the world, having been founded in 1858, which is an extraordinary statistic when you think about it and all the other amazing sporting clubs that are around the world now. Um, and it's the only AFL club that truly calls its name Melbourne. It was born in, so it's sort of representative in the city of the city, you know, in some sort of way. Uh, Collingwood and Richmond wouldn't agree with that, of course, but, you know, it, it is called Melbourne, so it bears the city's name. Um, it emanated out of the Melbourne Cricket Club and its spiritual homes, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. So you look through all that history, it's actually quite a big deal. And I don't think you, as a competition as strong as the AFL, could possibly lose a name like that. And I think it was at that point where people wondered whether it would lose it. And I think the second thing was a personal thing. I saw the challenge and thought, well, why not give it a go and see what happens? So I don't get scared by those challenges. So sort of uh, think, well, there's an opportunity there. I might as well have a crack. Uh, I'm getting bored being semi-retired, so I'll go and do it. That's yep. pretty much how it happened. Yeah, no, well, it sounds like there was a lot to, to rescue. Can't get much worse at that point, and I guess you've got to try and uh, create a pathway forward. So, I mean, I'll be really interested to understand what was the strategy and the vision you set out early in that stint, and, and, and why did you adopt that specific strategy, if there was a, a clear one you can discuss? I don't think I adopted a strategy per se. Um, you know, we, we did change the board at that time and uh, some new people came in and, and, and replaced others and they started talking about strategy and I said, well, I'm not sure we're in a position right now to do a strategy. I think we've got 12 months, we've got to sort this place out. So in the first instance, we had to restructure the club and it had got a bit top heavy with management uh, expenses and so we needed to change that out. But the most important thing we needed to do is make sure we had the right people I just needed to spend the rest of 2013, you know, the last seven months of the year, just getting the right people in place and ready, ready to go on this path. And, of course, that started off with football, but it was also commercial and finance and, and uh, those important areas. So I basically rebuilt the executive team um, and uh, chased Paul Ruse because I, I thought that Paul, Paul was going to be critical because what, what we needed to do, he and I... What we need to do is rebuild the culture of the place, which was an in internal process that you need. It takes a lot of time. You can't just 
talk to it and say, oh, we'll change the culture and start telling stories about it or putting posters up on walls. You've got to actually build the process of standards and behaviours right through the whole organisation and get, get people uh, committed to them and challenging them and behaving the way you want them to behave and then all believing that that's the, that's the way we should go. So the beauty about bringing in someone like Paul Ruse, um, you know, he, he sort of, if he was prepared to put himself there and I was prepared to put myself there, then between us we could bring other people in. Uh, they said, well, you know, why, why am I going to wreck, wreck my career or take a risk with my career coming to Melbourne Football Club? And it was like it was. So with us being there, I think it, it provided that comfort and that security. So we, we managed over about, as it turned out, about an 18-month period to bring in some really, really good people. Um, and that, that's why the club is where it is now, because of those people we brought in. And that, that was the first, most really the most important thing to get right. When, when we sort of consolidated that, stopped the, the bleeding and all of all those things, then we, then we could get around building a, building a, a strategy for the future. I mean, it sounds like obviously, uh, notwithstanding the restructure, bringing the right people, maybe establishing you know the right behaviours to that, then culminating uh, and, and uh, the right uh, culture or getting the culture uh, and a place where you sort of at least have a foundation to, to uh, create a much healthier club situation. I mean, how, how did you really move the state of play from quite a, a dire one by the sounds of it to, you know, move the, the behaviours in a culture in a direction where you could actually make some meaningful progress? Well, you just got to keep telling the story about what's possible. And it's true that a lot of people don't believe you because uh, they, they go back to the, the past fairly quickly, uh, especially when, when you have a hiccup or, or, or you stumble on the way through. They immediately go straight back to the past and say, well, this, is, this isn't going to work. So you, you, it, it's, a, it's a long process to actually make people believe uh, that things can, can work if we... I mean, one of the things that Paul and I both agree, Simon Goodwin's exactly the same, uh, which is why he's got the current role, is that winning games of football are an outcome of everything else you do. So, I mean, it's, it's, who you're, it, it's almost trite to say that, but um, you know, we don't get into the detail of management. We get into the development of people, the selection and development of people, and then building a culture. So if you, if you recruit the right people, you develop their skill sets, you build strong professional relationships, they challenge each other, you create a great environment, they want to come to work. Doesn't matter whether they're a player or a staff member. They want to. They want to come to work and they want to succeed. And, and you build that common goal, then you can do it. Do anything really. But we had we had some tipping points. I think uh, probably uh, around about November 2015, and, and uh, where we where people actually started to believe, and, and a few things happened. We relaunched the brand of the Melbourne Football Club. Uh, we took over the CBD of Melbourne. And, no one knew we were going to do it at 6am with a new visual identity and, and made a statement about who Melbourne was and people were surprised and delighted that the Melbourne Football Club would do something so pioneering and so bold. Uh, at the same time, we finished the trade period uh, for that season and we got A-plus as a rating and uh, in previous years we had been laughed at uh, in terms of our list management decisions, drafting and trading. And then the third thing is we put out a profit of about $700,000. Wow. Those three things all happened in the space of about two or three weeks, and people started to believe, "Hey, this is this could happen." And staff suddenly had a spring in their step, and you could see the energy shift from, say, from me 
trying to convince them that they picked up that energy and they started to believe because they got excited about what was possible. Then the fans started to believe a bit because beforehand the fans just didn't believe. Uh, they'd been burnt so badly for so long they didn't want to believe. They, they didn't want to hope. They, didn't, they didn't, want, didn't want to risk their emotions by hoping. So it's easier to be critical and negative and expect the worst. So when the worst happens, I can deal with it. Yep. But when, when all those things sort of transpired, then... Then people, you could feel the you could feel the pickup of energy and emotion around the place, and we just went from there. Uh, we still took a while to win, win some games. I think we won ten in two thousand and sixteen and twelve in two thousand and seventeen. But, but you could feel you knew inside the club you're on the right path and you're going to get there. And, and they were the tipping points for me. So it's not rocket science, Sean. It's just a lot of hard work and building relationships, credibility, providing people a vision, making sure they believe in what you're trying to do. And then making sure they're running with it because you know you can't do it yourself. They've got to do it. It's like you, I mean, it's obvious you can't play the game of footy for them. They've got to play the game. So you know they just got to believe. It's a, it's a great answer and a great explanation. I guess one of the points you just made is you can't do it by yourself. And and obviously no. the relationship and the dynamic that I guess the two key leaders of any club, you know, the CEO and the coach, uh, is a super critical one. Uh, talk to us about how you managed to get Paul along for the, the journey or the challenge and out of retirement. But, um, you know, how did you guys, you know, work together to effectively turn the club around? Well, getting him was the hardest part. <laughs> so we, I was in Sydney sometime in June. I'd only been at the club for about five or six weeks and everyone expected I was going to go up at Paul Roos, but I didn't talk about it. And he, he played very coy on TV. I hadn't met him before then, but I rang him and said, can I have a chat? And he said, I'll come around the house. And I can distinctly remember Tammy was looking at me with a scowl on her face saying, you know, he's not going to Melbourne, get out of my house type of thing. <laughs> we're happy in retired life. And uh, he went to just get me a glass of water. And I was standing in his lounge room looking out the window. I could see a view of, you know, late June, supposedly winter. There's not a cloud in the sky, 22 degrees. I could see Coogee Beach from where he was and... <laughs> Sounds terrible. Peter, you, you got no hope. This is—he's not coming. <laughs> so he told me he wasn't coming, and then he started talking about succession plans and things like that. And I just got back and maintained the dialogue, and I kept asking him things, and he kept showing interest. And you know, I think he grew increasingly interested. He sort of personally invested in, in in the player list and how it was going, and watching them a bit. And he sort of got hooked in, like I I had a few months before, and. So I think I think the the main call was when I said, "Can you meet a couple of the players and talk to them?" So he, he met the leadership then leadership group, and I think they just asked him to come and coach them. And so he did. Yeah, he, that's how we got him in there. It was a long drawn out process, and it was a very very good decision uh, that he for us that he he came because uh, as I said, he brought that hope and that time. You know, in his first year, we won four games. It's the interesting thing about sporting organisations, Sean. If the team doesn't win, it's always the coach's fault. So we'll go and sack the coach and get another one. I yep. mean, it's not just AFL. It's <laughs> right across the board. It happens in EPL everywhere. You know, Paul won four games in his first year as coach and everyone looked up and said, well, gee whiz, um, maybe we've got some bigger, longer-term issues than the coach. If, if I had had Simon Goodwin in there in 2000. And, 14, I think he would have been fired, and I probably would have been fired if we'd won four games. So, because they wouldn't have accepted it. But Paul bought yes. that time mm. and that credibility, and that was really critical for us. It was just about starting to build the standards and behaviours around the footy department, getting in some people to work on the trademarks with the players and the coaches and commit to certain behaviours. 
uh, start to change the playing list. Uh, Todd Varney, as our list manager, was and his recruiting team played a critical role in that process. We started to get those decisions right, and I think the, the list they've built in the last five years is an extraordinary effort to put that list together from where it was. And uh, you know, it's a very talented, capable list now that, that hopefully will succeed. And then we just want Paul didn't want a long time. That was the other thing. I didn't want to. He didn't want to be committed to a long-term contract. He wanted a, a succession plan, so we had to find a successor. And Goodwin came in, had a chat to us, said all the things we were saying. And again, we hadn't met him, either of us. And as soon as he walked out the door, we knew he was the man for the job. So, And he's going to be a, a great coach. I've got no doubt about that. He's, he's really got the, the players, the relationships, uh, their belief in him very strong at the moment so uh, yeah I think that that's uh, that's how all that went and, w- and with that uh, you talk about sort of establishing the right standards and behaviours uh, notwithstanding the fact that you need a base level of talent to play professional uh, football was it also a matter of the people that you brought to the club ensuring that they had the right personalities and, and attitudes and outlooks to, to sort of meet or support those standards and behaviours were you looking at that side of a player as well Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, and what was interesting, I, when I first got there, I've said this publicly quite a few times, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't see anyone who in the club who I would have, anyone would have ranked in the top twenty-five percent for their position. So, but what I mean by that is, if you go around the AFL and, and you say, "Well, give me, tell me who the four best uh, people are in any role," so whether that's a finance manager or you know, commercial manager or a football manager or assistant coach or a midfielder or a key forward or a key defender. There just weren't enough. There weren't any really good people there and, and the club had lost some of its senior players in, in the not too distant past. There was actually no one in the locker room that could really show strong leadership and show these guys what was required to be an AFL player. So one of the first players we got in was Daniel Cross when he'd been delisted by the Western Bulldogs. Not because he was going to make a huge difference on the field, but his character and his training regime, he just blew their mind away. He doesn't talk much, Daniel. He's still there. <laughs> uh, but he do, he, he's still there as a, as a runner and a, a rehab coach. He doesn't talk much, but his deeds just make people look and, and say, okay, that's the standard we've got to achieve. Is it? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was that basic uh, that we needed people in the locker room that could, could show those sort of things. and. Todd Viney, to his credit, when he started looking at the list, he, you know, he's, he, he drafts players on, on various pillars and, and character and competitiveness are two pillars. You just, you, they will not go and pick the, the kid that's just the athlete. They'll, they'll do a lot of background work on his competitiveness and his character, You know, his work ethic, his integrity, his family, back, all sorts of different things and bring those... Character and, and, and competitiveness probably rank or do rank equally with talent. So if they see a talented player who they think is a little bit down in those other areas, they'll, they'll always take the one that's you know might even take a little bit less talented and go for the other two pillars, and it's standard. It's sort of in really good stead over the last five years. No, great answer. I want to sort of shift the, I guess the the next question to a wider context outside of uh, AFL, and and obviously as, as we've seen with the. Bank and Royal Commission and the likes of Australian cricket that uh, arguably governance and culture have been key aspects that have been lacking, uh, be, it, be it sport or in the corporate world, being uh, that you've been in both. You know, in your opinion, why are these aspects so important? 
I think what's happening in in those two organize, you know, those areas that you mentioned is people are too focused on on management outcomes and you know KPIs and financial bottom line as if somehow they can manage those. I mean, I I, I do a fair bit of leadership development work, uh, Sean. One thing I always open up by saying that leadership and management are both important skills, but they're different. Uh, management is about you know financial plans, operating plans, logistics, risk management, and, and we have KPIs that we quantify and we have budgets and all the rest. That's important. I, I absolutely know it's important from business world. Where I've come from of recent from the sports world is that we don't have we're not judged on making a profit. We're judged on winning games of footy, and there's a certain amount of management we've got to do, but the, it's disproportionately weighed towards leadership, which is culture. Governance, I call, is the quality of your decision-making. Good people making good decisions on a regular basis, challenging each other, the environment you create, whether people want to come to work. And I think that last point is the critical point that uh, some of those other organisations missed. I mean, going to work is the most uh, significant use of your time as a human being. I mean, you're going to work from 20 to 70, uh, unless you're lucky with inheritance or tax lotto. And you're going to spend most of the hours you're awake, most of the days of the week, at work. So it's a really important part of who you are as a human being. And this thing is somehow that you can go to work and divorce yourself from being a human being and just worry about management and tasks makes no sense at all. It doesn't work in sport. You've got to to make a connection to why do people want to work. People work for a whole lot of different reasons and no one necessarily works for the same reasons, but they're things like respect and recognition and personal achievement, growth, camaraderie, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. There's a whole lot of different reasons why people go to work and that's what it is to be a human being. So if you're going to an environment that you really feel good about, that you want to be there because you're achieving all your personal ambitions as well, you're going to work better. And you're not going to leave. So if you're not going to leave, you don't get turnover, you don't get rehiring costs, you don't, you know, you get stability, uh, you get good out, you get increased output as a company. So to me, there's a direct correlation between profit and how people feel about working for you. And that that implies there's there's the technical base to start with, and I'm just assuming that's a given. And it just seems to me when I read some of the literature that's been going on about both Cricket Australia and, and, and I've read a fair bit about the Commonwealth Bank, there was too much focus on um, trying to manage the outcome and rewarding people for achieving a certain outcome financially rather than you know this, this other stuff about culture and environment. I think it's going to be changed. I think 2019 is going to be interesting because I think Australia has had a fair amount of short-termism uh, CEOs have been rewarded personally for the bottom line results and people are getting annoyed about that a, a bit much. It's showing that it doesn't always work. Um, Short termism means, you know, what's the share price today, what's the dividend yield tomorrow, all those sort of things. Um, I think the boards and CEOs might change the nature of conversations from now on a bit about, well, we've got to start looking at this people and culture and governance type stuff. I'm not sure they know what it is though. I don't. I think you know the danger they can talk about is going to get some high price consultants and you know um, do a culture audit and then you know do some high level work and stick some nice posters on the wall and you know that, that that's not what it's all about. It's a it's taken us five years. It took us four three years to even get a sense of momentum, let alone results. So 
I, I think that's the difference. I don't know if I'm explaining myself. I'm starting to waffle a bit, I guess. But now, um, now I, th- I think you made some 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 great points there around the tangible benefits of of getting those two things right. A bit the the culture and governance sort of side of it, and maybe you know using the uh, banking sector or the Australian yeah. cricket team, how those things uh, maybe haven't been as prevalent or in a healthy state, and we've all seen the outcomes. I, I want to shift the conversation towards you, and if we can sort of put your humbleness aside. Um, how how do you sort of define your own personal leadership brand? Yeah, I've never thought about that before, to be honest. I, I well, what do you seek to to be as a as a leader? Uh, you know, is there any sort of benchmarks, values, non negotiables that you sort of look to define yourself by? I think I define myself by getting the right people working for me to understand that. You're as good, yes, you know, an old adage, you're as good as the people that work for you, as a coach, you're as good as the player, players that work for you, and how hard do they want to work for you? So, first of all, that's, that's the recruitment, it's the character, it's the capacity of those people, and then the environment you help create for them. So, that, you know, they're growing as people in whatever area, at whatever level, whether it's executive level or accounts payable level, they're growing. As in, and, and they're feeling good about themselves, they'll, they'll put in for you and they'll make you look really good as a leader. And I, you know, that sounds, I don't know, overly simplistic, but it's, it's an absolute reality. I think, you know, some people get carried away with the fact that they're the, they're the leader, they're the boss, they're in control. They, the world would be best, best if they tell everyone else how to do their job or what to do. You know, I just don't think that works. I think people have got to be able to uh, grow and develop and achieve themselves. And if they do, then that's that's how you lead. Um, that's not a brand per se. That's just a philosophy more than anything else. No, I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic philosophy. Uh, you know, not only getting the right people around you and maybe uh, putting your ego to the side to ensure that you know, you, as the old adage goes, you don't always need to be the smartest person in the room. But if you got the right talent around you and and they possess the right character then I think uh, you get those things right. Um, in essence, that gives you a fighting chance to achieve success as a leader, and it seems like it's a, a core philosophy, uh, which is a great one. But, I mean, how have you gone about developing and growing yourself? This uh, graduate from Adelaide, and, and you sort of seek experience in different environments and, and give an opportunity and, and whatnot, and presumably you're growing uh, over that period of time, getting your experiences. I mean, how have you sort of shifted your, your skill set and capability as a leader? Well, the shift into football did that because I went from you know, a business analyst type outlook to having to shift towards uh, understanding people in a lot stronger way, a lot better way. Businesses talk of people being our most important asset. Some of them don't live it. You know, they've got other strategic levers they're going to pull anyway in trying to achieve success. Whereas in sport, yeah, you've only got people, you don't have anything else, and you just rise or fail, succeed or fail on the basis of your people. There's nothing else you've got to work with. So I'm very, very grateful that over the last 20 years I've had in, in elite sport rather than just business. I think it's more fun, it's more exciting, creates a different dimension to what you do. I've, I've engaged a lot of time in learning how to understand people, uh, what makes people different, uh, how you how you relate to those people, how you build a relationship with people who are different, how you provide feedback 
to people who are different. You can't give the same feedback to everyone the same way. It just doesn't work. So to, to basically understand that, um, and as I've been talking a lot, how to create the right environment, and the best thing, the way to develop yourself, I think, is to listen. If you listen to some of the people that are really good at it, you learn. And that, that's not by going necessarily to, you know, seminars and conferences. That's just getting around the people that know how to do it, you know, just picking up what Paul Ruse says, picking up what Simon Goodwin does, uh, and picking up what Kevin Sheedy did, um, and just understanding how they go about it and watching and listening and learning and applying the principles yourself. If you're, if you're listening more than you're talking uh, and you've got two ears and one mouth, you should, probably should do it in that proportion. But if you're listening a lot you'll, and you listen to the best, you'll develop yourself. Now, again, fantastic answer. You, you talk earlier in the podcast about um, getting people with the right character and you talk about competitiveness and, and you, you talk about uh, a core philosophy of uh, getting the right people around you. I mean, what do you, what do you specifically look for in people that work for you? Well, technical skills, obviously. Yep. Um, if they can't do the job, you know, so that, whether that's a player or a, or a financial guy or a, or a marketing guy, so technical technical skills first. But after that, character and intelligence. What sort of raw intelligence have they got? Because I really think that helps people do their job and, and learn. Yeah, you know, I've got I've had some young guys at Melbourne who who have you know been nowhere near what they need to be as a leader when I put them into the role, but they had the basic intelligence to learn about people, uh, to accept what people are like and, and to start modifying and changing their own thought patterns about how they had to conduct themselves. And then there's character, like the work ethic. I don't think people should be working you know, 24-7. That's not what I mean, but while you're there, you're working hard. You've got, you know, got the integrity. You shouldn't be... You shouldn't be putting values like intelligence, sorry, integrity, honesty, trust, respect up on the wall. A lot of companies do, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying they should be, they should be non-negotiables. Mm. You should sort that, you know, you should endeavour to find that out in your recruitment and your reference checking, and if there's any doubt, don't do it. It shouldn't be something you talk about once you get people on board, and if you make some mistakes in that area, well, you've got to get them off board. So, um you know that those things that that's the character side of things if you've got an executive team that doesn't have the right character or the right level of intelligence and gets caught up in themselves in terms of their role and their title then their people aren't going to follow them their people aren't going to work for them so that, that they're the two things for me Obviously, in a role as a CEO of a very visible organisation like uh, Melbourne or Essendon, there's an awful lot going on. No doubt your own expectations and drivers put a certain amount of pressure uh, on a person as well. I mean, how have you gone about managing an element of harmony or sustainability in those visible demanding roles as an executive? Yeah, well... If you ask my wife and others close to me, <laughs> I say I didn't, I didn't maintain harmony, and you don't. I mean, it does get you from time to time, like any role would. There, there is that. That's one of the reasons you end up, someone like me ends up moving on. I've done it twice now because it is all-encompassing. And we're in Melbourne when we're talking about this. It might be easier at Brisbane. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, probably is. But, but, but down here, you know, this AFL's, 
just despite the weather, it's all they talk about. People couldn't have conversations and it wasn't for Melbourne's weather and the AFL football. So, <laughs> yeah, it is really it is really demanding in that sense and it, it defines who you are in the eyes of so many other people. Um, part of the way I've done it, I've got a beautiful property, smaller property, but it's both a hobby and a mission of mine up in the Masson Ranges down near Trentham and, uh, you know, that that's get away, forget it. Don't no one up there is interested in football. They don't know who you are, and just get on and do what you do up there. That's part of it to give you a complete break. Uh, but it's not easy. I, I, I actually say working in football is you know it's not a job. It's a way of life. It's a bit like a dairy farmer. You still got to milk the cows on Christmas Day. Or as footy's expanded, you know, when when I went into Melbourne, we had one team. Now we've got four. In five, that's happened in five years. There's two women's teams. There's a VFL team, and then there's the AFL team. So. You know, that means the seasons are expanded and the days of the week are expanded and it's, it's not easy. It's not easy and the industry's got to come to terms with, uh, I think, where it's going in this space. It can't just run for 12 months of the year non-stop. It'll burn everybody out. So uh, it's having those discussions as an industry at the moment. I think you know, we, we, it's a bit of less is more yeah, to well, some extent, I think. A couple of things that reason out, I think, to, to achieve anything great or, or, or of significance in any walk of life, I think you do have to pour a lot of yourself into it. And I think oh, yeah, you've definitely absolutely. done that. But it seems like you've also uh, been clever enough to realise that it's nice to have a release and, and get away and get off the grid and, and sort of reboot a little bit with getting out to the farm. So I think, uh, in essence, I think there's no denying if you want to achieve anything of significance, you, you need to really pour yourself into it. But also it's important to to get away from that because it's uh there's probably whilst you're in melbourne it's very hard to get away from it but that, that's maybe a good maybe intersection for i guess getting a little bit reflective and i think yeah you obviously you view things differently now than what you did uh when you were younger and you've got the benefit of, of hindsight experience and and a bunch of other things but i mean looking back uh, over your career thus far and uh if you were to sort of write a letter or, or, or sort of communicate a piece of advice to that young graduate from uh, from Adelaide, I mean, what pieces of wisdom would you pass on to that young fella? Well, knowing me as I am, this wouldn't be relevant to people that aren't the same as me, but I know a lot of guys who are pretty much the same as me, But um, and women, I've got to say, these days. So, um, two things, stay patient if you can. Number two is don't sweat stuff you can't control. Um, you know, don't let little things piss you off and don't don't try and worry about stuff that doesn't matter, but you, you might. Uh, not everyone does, but I have and a lot of other people do. And then understand as soon as you can, uh, it's, it's going to be about the people that work for you. It's not going to be about what you do. It's going to be about the people that work for you. So try and make everything you do as much about them as you can. So that, that would be my three pieces of advice. Now, fantastic. Just sort of moving towards the end of the, the podcast, with the uh, the club, it's, it's a well position. there's a great platform. You, you're transitioned out of the club now and, and it's in good health. I mean, what's your, what's your view on the future of the club from here? And, and I guess, what do, you, what do you hope or trust your legacy has been from your time at Melbourne Football Club? Yeah, well, I was never I was never going to complete the journey at the Melbourne Football Club in terms of you know ultimate success because I was never going to be there that long because of where I am at my own lifestyle. But one of the things what we wanted to do was just set up 
a platform for sustainable success, uh, not short-term success, not win a flag. And I mean, everyone, all the Melbourne diehards, those people who have done it so hard, would, would love a, a flag. Well, I, I, I think what we want to see them do is play finals football each year for the next 10 years, uh, half of those in the final four and maybe pick up a couple of flags on the way through, you know, the, the Hawthorne-type record, the Geelong-type record, uh, the Sydney-type record. That's what that's what we set this place up for over the last five years and that's what I seriously hope happens and I think there's plenty of good people there. Simon Goodwin's going to be a great coach. He's backed up by a great team. They've got a good, good executive team so and a very good playing list and I think other players will look on and say, well, you know... You, this mob are pretty good, they operate pretty well, maybe I want to be there. Uh, and that would never have happened five years ago. So that, that helps roll on success. So uh, that's what I hope happens. I hope the supporters get to enjoy their next decade fundamentally. Now, what seems like sustainability is an important aspect of what you've uh, sought to achieve, and it, and it certainly seems like it's uh, it's heading in that direction. So I think that's um, yeah, credit to you and the other people involved. But uh, just in, in closing, Peter, I mean, obviously you've achieved a lot, you've done a lot. Uh, I guess I'd be interested to understand, uh, I'm imagining an individual like you, you're not going to sit back and rest on your laurels, but I mean, what, what what's, your, what's your vision of what comes next for Peter Jackson? Well, I got pretty passionate about this sort of stuff, so I think next year I've been just giving myself three months this year to get around and talk to a few people. And I'd like to work with some corporates who who get who understand now that they probably need to, to rebalance it stuff away from the management, and the bottom line results to more on the people and the culture and and the standards and behaviours. They, they can see it works for sport. Uh, it only makes sense it should work for business as well because business, businesses and sport just are made up of people. That's all they are. So get, get your people together and how do you get the best perform? How do you create a high-performance workplace? That's my plan. I'd like to work with a few, uh, you know, I, I, it's not going to work with the really, really big ones because uh, they're just too big to change. But, you know, some of those medium-sized corporations, I would, you know, I'm going to plan to work with them and get together with a few guys who, who know what they're doing and... Uh, work in that space so Hopefully that goes well. Oh, I totally agree. I think there's so many parallels between uh, high-performance sport and high-performance business world. You've got an awful lot to offer, not only from your time in, in sports administration, but obviously your corporate career before that. So, Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to share your journey. Congratulations on everything that you've achieved thus far and, and, and all the best and uh, what comes next. Really appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Sean. I really appreciate you thinking of me and uh, thinking I've got something to offer. So... Uh, I'll say that uh, not lightly. I thank you for uh, talking to me.